table uh, to the back where you'll also find Bibles. So if you need a Bible and you also need D-Now information, it's like a one-stop shop for you. Um, make sure to grab one of these before you leave today. Um, and if you have any other information that isn't addressed by what we read here, catch up with me. And I would love to um, talk with you more and, and share with you a little bit more about what... Um, about what's going on. Also, uh, some of you uh, might know, and I don't know that I was going to mention this, but in light of the song that we just sang, um, I feel like I need to. Um, this past week, I was in Chicago, Christ the King, uh, well, myself, and then also this fellowship have had a really wonderful relationship with an organization called Leadership Resources International uh, for a couple of years now, um, and just super passionate about their work, super passionate about their mission, this desire that they have. Um, to see uh, the Word of God uh, move and, and work and be proclaimed and go out. This desire to see a movement of God's Word take place in every church to every nation. Um, that's what they're about, and that's what we're about. And so it makes for a really uh, simple partnership, right? Really natural partnership. I was in Chicago with those brothers this past week. Um, with all of their staff, which this is insane. Uh, this is the one time a year, these like three days, that they can get everybody in one room at the same time because they're traveling all the time. They're all over the globe. Uh, they spend more time, I feel like, in the air than they do on the ground. And so um, it was a wonderful week to be there with them and just to continue to hear about the work that's being done um, in this world, right? Um, as the Word of God is, uh, is preached and those who preach and teach God's Word are equipped to do so uh, more faithfully. Um, and then also to just hear how this begins to affect and transform fellowships you, right, um, and how we read the Bible. And so one of the things that I'm excited about and looking forward to over the next coming months um, is beginning to uh, to walk through and, and share with you guys more about um, the, these ways that we read and approach uh, the Bible, convictions that we have and tools that we use. And so um, I'm excited to begin doing that with our membership here at Christ the King and also uh, with all of our uh, DNA group leaders as we progress forward. And so Great week in Chicago. Thank you guys for who, who were praying um, for that. And uh, and I'll be back in just two months. Well, like a month. I go back in June uh, to be a part of our Juliet group, um, a group of pastors that we're going through these, uh, these workshops with. And so be in prayer for those guys and for that workshop as well. Um, now, let's go to the book of Ruth. So um, you may not know where Ruth is. And so allow me to point you in the right direction. Go to uh, the front of your Bible. And then you're going to uh, proceed to turn to the right um, through the book of Genesis, through the book of Exodus. You're going to go through Leviticus. Uh, you're going to go through Numbers and Deuteronomy, uh, the book of Joshua, and then Judges. And then right there, after the book of Judges, you're going to find uh, the book of Ruth, this short uh, four-chapter book tucked away um, in, the first, uh, in the first third of the Old Testament. We spent 16 months going through the Gospel of Mark, um, and we, uh, as we say again and again and again, man, love God's Word. We have this strong conviction and belief that God's Word, uh, God's Word, uh, as the Spirit works, brings about transformation in the human heart. Um, and so we're committed to, um, to, to faithfully going to God's Word and spending time there and um, hearing what God has said and 
understanding God's heart through what he has said, understanding how all of this fits together in this grand redemptive narrative. And so we are not uh, we are not those who believe that uh, that the Old Testament is something that just needs to be like tucked away or put on a bookshelf and like we'll spend forever in the New Testament, but uh, we want to spend time in the Old Testament. And so typically the way that we will go about uh, going through series here at Christ the King, here's a look into uh, into the, the, the goals, right, um, is to spend time in the New Testament. And then when we spend time in the New Testament, we go to the Old Testament. And so we go back and forth so that we get a greater and fuller understanding of what God is doing uh, over the course of redemptive history. And so I'm excited to be in the book of uh, of book, book of Ruth. Maybe you've spent some time studying through it before. Maybe you haven't. Um, it's not going to be a long study uh, through this book because it's only four chapters, like I said earlier. Uh, but uh, I think it's going to be super profitable. Uh, and I would encourage you, if you're not as familiar with the Old Testament, man, lean in, right? Let's lean in and let's learn how um, we see Christ in the book of Ruth. We're talking about the gospel according to Ruth. We see this proclamation of the gospel and this progression uh, through and into God's redemptive narrative here in the book of Ruth. It is an integral part of what we see as we turn through the Old Testament and come into the New Testament and the birth of Jesus, his perfect life, his sacrifice for sins, his resurrection from the dead, all of these things, right? Essential in this story is this short four-chapter book entitled Ruth. I love what the, our, our boys, the boys of the Bible Project, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible Project, I'd encourage you to use them as a resource often. I know sometimes as we're reading through books of the Bible, we don't necessarily grasp the bigger picture as we begin reading, which is a great disservice. And so I would encourage you to lean into and take advantage of the resources made available through the guys uh, at the Bible Project had this to say about the book of Ruth. So this is a quote right here, all right? Say this, this is not simply a love story. Now there is a story of of love. In fact, there's this great story of love that we see unpacked over the course of these four chapters. But uh, the greatest story of love requires us to, to lean in a little bit more. To to understand what God is doing. It is a story uh, about God and how he restores those who look to him with hope. Restoration for those who look to God with hope. It's about God's covenant faithfulness. Wait a second. You're telling me over the course of these four chapters we're going to learn about the covenant faithfulness of God? That is uh, an extremely practical and extremely applicable point for us to understand as we approach the 66 books that make up God's written word, right? And so we're going we're to learn more about God's covenant faithfulness, and it contributes to the overall covenant storyline that unifies the entire Bible. Here's a practice that I would encourage you to uh, engage in over the course of the next week. I want you to go to uh, the beginning of your Bible, and I want you to read the first four chapters of the book of Genesis. I want you to make observations about what you see there. I want you to lean into Genesis 3, verse 15, the Proto-Evangelium, the first proclamation of the gospel. This, 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 this clear statement concerning God's plan to bring about the judgment of evil and the redemption of sinners by way of the seed that we know to be Christ. 
And then I want you to go to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and I want you to read the end of the Bible. Now, this breaks every, like, movie-watching, book-reading rule, doesn't it, right? Like, if you go to the beginning and you watch the first five minutes, and then you go to the end and you watch the last five minutes, you go, well, like, I'm utterly confused. And, like, whatever surprises are found in those last five minutes now produce within me zero desire to engage with the rest of the movie, right? When we read the Bible, it works differently, though, because it helps for us to see what God is doing, to understand this redemptive arc that transcends history, and at the same time is woven throughout history, right? And so go to the first, uh, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, read the first four chapters, and then go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, uh, and read Revelation 21 and 22, and then understand like what God has done and where we are, See his covenant promise, and then see where he is taking us. And in light of the rebellion of humanity that we observe in the first four chapters, we're left going, how in the world is God going to accomplish that which we see and observe in Revelation 21 and 22? How are we to be with God? If we understand the beginning and the end of the book, then we're then able to make much more sense by God's grace of the rest of the story and where these books fit into this plan of redemption. Does that make sense? You guys with me so far? And so Ruth finds a place in this plan of redemption. This is a, this is a stop along the way as God is accomplishing his providential and sovereign purposes to bring about his will, the glorification of his name and forgiveness for you and I as we look to him in hope, the hope of Christ and his righteousness imputed to you and I, given to us that we might stand before holy God and exist in community with him. Right? We're going to see how the book of Ruth finds its place in this in this story. And one thing that we're going to observe this morning as we lean into chapter 1, we're doing all of chapter 1 this morning, is this, that in the midst of difficulty, the call remains. And so we're talking about some, some application point here as we, uh, as we begin to go into the book of Ruth, right? And in the midst of difficulty, the call remains. Look to and trust in God. What are we going to be talking about? We talk about looking to and trusting in God to turn from sin and to turn to Him, confident that His Word is good and true. Let me say that last portion one more time. We turn from sin and we turn to Him, confident that His Word is good and true. We can eat it, right? Like we want to be eaters of the book. We want to eat the book. I want to rest in the book. We want to abide in the book. Because, as we do, the great covenant faithfulness of God is is unfolded. It's laid out before us. It produces hope, conviction, celebration, and joy. Transforms who we are, right? And it transforms the way that we live. So I want us to this morning, I want us to consider these truths as we approach Ruth chapter 1. I want us to consider the sovereign plan of God and His work in and through all the circumstances 
of life. Don't we need to hear that? Like, don't we need to know that? That God sovereignly works in and through all of the circumstances of our lives. As we, as we come to grips with this, right? As we begin to wrap our arms around this and, and unpack all of its implications for our existence, we find that there is a sense of assurance that is produced. Assurance and, and confidence among God's people. Assurance and confidence that we need. Think about where we left off last week. So we saw the resurrection and the fear of God's people as they are now engaging in mission. Assurance and confidence among God's people needed to endure. We need it. Right? We need assurance. We need confidence. We need confidence in God's sovereignty. We need confidence in God's providential plan. We need that. Why? Well, because life is hard. And none of us are getting out of here alive. And we need it, right? Like we need it as we're confronted with, with difficulty and hardship and question and concern and fear. Mark chapter 16. This morning we see three things from Ruth chapter 1. We see a family in flight. We see a repentant heart and an expression of faith. And then we see a harvest. A family in flight, a repentant heart, and an expression of faith. And then finally, lastly, a harvest. And so let's go to Ruth chapter 1. And let's read God's inspired and errant and fallible word. Confident. That it glorifies Him. Right? And it works to our good. This is God's word, beginning in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now we're about to be introduced to some very important characters. So, so, so lean in for this part, right? The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Shilom. They were Epaphrodites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. And we're going to talk about why that's such a big deal in just a few minutes. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, verse 3, and she was left with the two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Milon and Shiloh died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And so this is a tragic tale from the beginning. Verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country, uh, from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. 
So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. She begins to pray over them here. It's a side note. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. There's an intimacy within this, this family here, right? There's a, a genuine care and concern. Things have been difficult. We see that reflected through the first nine verses. Verse 10. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. I mean, it's just weeping everywhere, right? Lots of weeping happening in the first 14 verses. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God, verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned. And Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem. And here it is. This is incredible. What a surprising end to chapter 1. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Hey, let's pray together and ask the Lord to, uh, to open our eyes. Uh, to his word this morning. Father, we're grateful for who you are, and we're grateful for what you have done. We are grateful that you rule sovereignly over all of creation, that you sleep not, but your eye remains fixed upon your people, that you are committed to our redemption, to the glory of your name, and for the good of the world. We're grateful for all that you have done, and we pray that by the power of your spirit, you might open our hearts and our eyes to see truth here this morning that would inspire within us postures of worship. Thank you for loving us. 
And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. And so we begin with a family in flight. A family in flight. If we look at verse 1 of Ruth chapter 1, we see this, this detail. And it might initially seem as though it's somewhat insignificant. Perhaps it exists solely for the purpose of being a time stamp. So that we might know where in the history of God's people we find ourselves. But I don't think that's true. I think there's more to it than that. We see in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so if we put it into practice, like like active Bible reading, there's a question that's produced within us as we come into Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, and that is this. The question is this. What in the world is going on among God's people during the days of the judges? Is it just a time stamp, or is there something more that we are to that we're to glean, right? To, to walk away with, to understand. If, if we lean in and we do some work, right, then we will come to find, and it really isn't hard work, because all we have to do is look to the left, one page. But we can find that in the days of the judges, God's people are experiencing turbulent times as a result of their sin and rebellion. In Judges chapter 17, verse 6, recorded is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. There's no king ruling over the people, and as a result, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, that produces great calamity among God's people, and it does so for you and I. Right, if we simply do what is right in our own eyes, as culture defines and dictates what is right and appropriate and good, then we are able to observe a mess of culture and community, aren't we? We see the people are, are doing what is right in their own eyes. They're not looking to the Lord. They're not looking at His instruction. They're not looking to His testimonies or His statutes. But instead, they're doing what they Deem to be right. The same thing is recorded in Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Literally, literally the last word in Judges. Look there with me. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, this is where we, this is it. Then we turn the page and we're in Ruth. And so we see in verse 25 again. This emphasis on the people doing what is right in their own eyes. So what does that mean? Well, here's what that means. It means this. It means that God's people are spiritually wayward. And as a result, Deuteronomy chapter 28, their crops and their harvests fail. And in this incredible plot twist, we find the city of bread in the midst of a famine. Why? Well, because the people have rebelled and God has said to his covenant people that this is the result. This is the consequence of of turning from me and doing Judges chapter 17, Judges chapter 21, what is right in your own eyes. You see, we are not 
the dictators of that which is right and appropriate. But God dictates what is right and what is appropriate. We talk about it often in terms of, of, of framework, right? We talk about how we all have a framework, and our frameworks are oftentimes constructed in light of where we live. Perhaps that ge- that's geographically. Perhaps it's when we live, right? Where we go to church, who our family is, what our education is, where we were educated, where we work, where we play. These things oftentimes dictate our frameworks. And frameworks are not in and of themselves bad. We say this all the time. But when they find themselves in in confrontation with God's word, we say our framework is to submit and even be transformed, to be torn down and to be rebuilt. In a way that finds itself most in alignment with what God has to say. The people are doing what is right in their own eyes. They're not leaning on the Lord, looking to the Lord for instruction for how they are to live and function. But they're simply determining this for themselves. Side note, as we go into this next portion. There is purpose in pain. C.S. Lewis wrote a, a book. Uh, I, got, I don't know when he wrote it, but I got it as a college student. I was moseying my way through the Lifeway Christian book section. and Well, it's all Christian books, isn't it? It's Lifeway. But, well, debatable. Okay, so we'll just say that. Um, so, so, which we can talk about more of that later if we need to. But I come across C.S. Lewis, classic section. Man, so if you go to Lifeway or go to Barnes & Noble, man, just find that Christian classic section and like, Set up a tent, live there, okay? Read a lot of those guys. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem with Pain, and it was all about the way culture uh, understands the purpose of, of pain and the way that God's Word informs our understanding of the purpose of pain. We find that amidst the calamity of the people and the famine that results in light of their disobedience, that there is a purpose in the pain of the people. We see God showing his people their need for repentance. We see God calling his people to turn back to him, to look to him, to cry out to him, and to love him. And if they would, Deuteronomy chapter 30, God would have mercy on them and he would extend compassion. And so we find the city of bread in the midst of a famine as a result of people doing what is right in their own eyes. And the Lord says, pain, right? Hardship, difficulty, in order that, as we're going to observe through the life of Naomi, humility is produced. Reliance is produced. And so there's there's purpose in pain, right? In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your difficulty, know this, that God rules supreme and sovereignly over your hardship. Right? That it's, it's purposeful. Even that which is intended for evil against us, God works for good. Right? And so we continue unpacking this, this thread, understanding the people's position and God's response, only as opposed to turning toward the Lord and, and feasting on his word. This family, led by Elimelech, the father, turned their faces towards Moab. Look with me at the second part of verse 1. He went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Being Elimelech, he and his wife and his two sons. They went into the country of Moab. 
The end of verse 2. And they remained there. And so let's understand this, this family in flight and the, the poor decisions that are taking place and the order that we can understand to a greater degree how God works these things for ultimate good. We see this family leave this land that has been given to them by God. As a part of his covenant promise, as a, as a display of his covenant faithfulness and his commitment to immigrate to a land greatly associated with sin and wickedness. Speaking about Moab, Moab is a product of incestuous relationship and pagan idolatrous worship. And Elimelech and his family, as opposed to turning to the word of God for comfort, turn from it. And they seek instead refuge outside of his provision. Right? They, they, they observe the, the calamity within the land and they say, we're going to Moab. Right? Things are, are, are hard here. Things are difficult here. God's desire is that they would turn from their sin. The people as a whole would turn from their sin and they would turn back to him in order that he might display his love and generosity and, 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 and goodness as he extends compassion and mercy. Only instead of responding this way, they flee from the land and they seek refuge outside of the provision of God. We see here an example of poor like misguided leadership and a a call towards reliance on God through difficulty. And so I want us to take just a moment and I want to challenge the men here, right? I want to challenge the men and I want to be challenged myself to lead our families in accordance with the word of God. We don't know all of the details surrounding this family's flight out of Bethlehem and into Moab. Right? We don't know if, hey, maybe, maybe, maybe Naomi was, was like laying it on Elimelech pretty hard, right? Like, let's get out of here, right? Maybe Elimelech was under, under pressure to make a certain decision in order to please those who uh, exist in closest proximity to himself, which makes life sometimes much easier. We don't know all of the circumstances surrounding the decision, but we do know that Elimelech leads his family out of the city of bread. And this land that has been given to God's people them to, to enjoy right, and, to, and to dwell in as a display of his, of his love and his generosity and his covenant faithfulness. They, they leave the land in order to go to Moab. And so the challenge is really very simple. Maybe you're married, maybe you're single, like whatever that kind of looks like. Know this, right? That, that men, we are to look to God's word and it is to dictate and drive and inform the decisions that we make. Do you guys get this? 
Now, this isn't to say that God does not rule sovereignly over this situation. But what we do want to say is this, that as men, we ought to humble ourselves before the Lord. Right? And, to, and to look to His Word, to, 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 to abide in His Word, to live in His Word, in order that we can, in a most appropriate fashion, guide our families. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me here? Is it challenging at times? Yeah, it is, right? Does it require great grace and the strength of the Spirit to live this type of life? Absolutely it does, and that is intentional. And we can't do this on our own, right? We can't do it on our own. And so what does that look like for you? Single guys, right? Like what, what does it look like to begin looking at God's word and, and, and seeing it as, as the ultimate authority on all issues? Right? Driving the decisions that we make, informing the things that we say and the things that we don't say. It's challenging, isn't it? But it's good. And I need it. And you need it. We need it together. We need it. We need it together. Look with me at verse 3. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, dies. So there you go. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. And the name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And then we see that both the sons die as well, so that the women are left. One without her son, and two without their husbands. We see this is a chapter one of Ruth. Like, just the first part. If you just read the first part and you stop there, I mean, you are like just chaos everywhere, right? Like, misfortune and brokenness all over the place. And we're going to talk about what this means. As we continue through our time in Ruth chapter 1. We're not going to dwell too much on it right now. But we're going to see that there's a connection between this family in flight. And the repentant heart and expression of faith. Leading us into our final point. Which is the harvest. So let's go on to point 2. We've seen the family in flight. We've seen the the results. right? We, We have a pretty, I think, decent understanding of the landscape of this story as we begin. Let's now look at the repentant heart and an expression of faith. This book begins and it ends in Bethlehem. But it's what happens in between these points that is central. And so I want to draw your attention. We're going to have a brief, I don't do this a lot because to be honest, like most people don't care, um, but I'm going to do it this morning. I'm going to introduce you to um, a Hebrew word, okay? Because it's all over the place in this passage. And in the English, you actually see it expressed in a number of different ways. But in the Hebrew, it's one word. Okay, and so let's let's let me introduce you to this word, and then I'm going to tell you where we see it. The word is shoe. Shoe is the word, and it's repeated numerous of times from this point through the end of chapter one, and it means to return to, or to turn back. To God's great covenantal grace. And to do so for mercy. And so when we see this word shub in Ruth chapter 1, we're seeing this emphasis on what you and I most oftentimes refer to as repentance. 
Right, it's, it's a turning back to God and His great covenantal grace uh, and mercy for repentance and conversion. Okay, Repentance and conversion, we see it used in a number of different ways. And so uh, I want us to observe, by way of a repentant heart and expression of faith, what is going on in the life of Naomi and her dialogue, as well as Ruth. What's going on with Naomi, and then what's going on with the daughter-in-laws? We'll spend a brief moment talking about Orpah, but most is going to be talked about Ruth. You guys ready? Lean in here with me. This is good. In verse 6, we see evidence of grace and preparation within Naomi's heart by the Lord. Leading her to not only turn from Moab physically, but to return to Bethlehem. To spiritually turn from sin and to, in essence, return back to God. Now, the danger when reading through this portion of Ruth is to say that there's just a a change of address that's taking place. But what we have to understand, and we do as we understand Shub, right, is that there's more than just a change of address that's taking place. There's more than this new geographical destination, but there's a transformation of heart. And so that's what we're going to spend some time working on seeing. Verse 6 says this, Then she arose, speaking of Naomi, with her daughters-in-law, to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Wouldn't you love to hear what that conversation in the fields of Moab looked like? Like, have you guys, have you guys heard what's going on in Bethlehem? Like, this is crazy. Like they were in a famine, and now they're like feasting, right? It's like insane. Lots of things that are happening. Naomi hears of this, and in verse 6, we see that she responds in a most interesting way. Consider again the calamity that has come upon her and her family. The death of her husband, her two sons. She's got two Moabite widows, right, that she's like caring for, and they're caring for one another. There's all a lot going on. But we see in verse 6 that Naomi, in spite of the calamity that she has experienced, the hardship, the difficulty, does not turn her back on the Lord. And even most importantly, in this wonderful act of God's sovereignty, he has not turned his back on Naomi. We continue on. Naomi doesn't lift her fist into the air, clenched, and begin shaking it towards the sky in response to the transpiring events, right? This this feast, this, this harvest that is to take place in Bethlehem that's going on. Instead, we can observe the Lord's assumed work in the heart of Naomi to prepare her through suffering to respond well to the news of bread again in the city. Sinclair Ferguson says it like this. We see that covenant blessings have returned. The Lord has had compassion. Can you have the waywardness of God's people and his desire in verse 1 for them to turn back to him in order that, that their land might be healed and that he might display his great compassion and mercy. Elimelech and his family roll out. Right? But news reaches Moab, and we're talking like 10 years have transpired at this point, that the Lord has extended grace. He has had compassion. There's a supply of food again. 
the needs of the people are being met. And the Lord opens Naomi's heart. He opens her heart and he brings her back through bitter experience to his blessing. We see Naomi repenting in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me, because I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to see it from God's word. Verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return. Can you guess what that word return means? Or is? What does it translate to from the Hebrew? Or in the Hebrew? Shoot. What does shub mean? Well, it means to, to, to repent, to turn from it, to turn back to God. And so we see that in the midst of difficulty and trial and suffering, the Lord has prepared the heart of Naomi. He has displayed faithfulness, not only to his people there in Bethlehem, but also to Naomi dwelling in this sinful land. She repents. And it appears for a moment that her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpha, decided to follow her back. And it's here that we see a beautiful exposition of the cost of discipleship from Naomi. What does it look like to, to, follow, after, to follow after God? What does it look like to to confess and to profess, to to display faith and to possess faith? What does that look like? What does it mean? We talked about this as we concluded our time in Mark chapter 16, didn't we? Right? Is this the Jesus that you're following? What does it look like to follow after Jesus? Let's look at it from a from a this side of the cross perspective, right? What does it look like to be a Christian? What does it look like to be one of God's people? Man, Naomi puts on a clinic of exposition here. Let's look, verse 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to what? What does it say? Don't look at me. Look there. What does it say? To return. Shoot. To return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go. Like, don't, don't do it. <laughs> like, return to the place. Uh, return to each of you to uh, your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with uh, the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them. They lifted up their voices. They began weeping. And she said, uh, uh, and then they said to her, no, no. Hey, we will return. We will shoot. Right? We will turn. We will come with you. To your people. But Naomi says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb? They may become your your husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear a son, what are you going to do? Are you going to wait until they're grown so that you can have a husband again? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for you, uh, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. We see a response from Naomi, but we also see a response both from Orpah as well as Ruth. Now let's, um, let's just spend a moment unpacking this. Okay, we see Naomi making it abundantly clear that being a part of God's covenant people comes with no guarantees for security and material prosperity. 
That's, that's, that's the exposition that she's putting on. Right? This is what it looks like to turn to. To turn from and turn to. There is no guarantee of, of prosperity. Right? There's no guarantee of material possession. There is no guarantee that you will have husbands, right? children. She paints this picture of a, of a, of a difficulty that initially appears, right? As it pertains to following after Jesus. There's no guarantee for these things. Naomi knows this, and yet there is this truth in God, in His care and provision. Here are your options. Right? You can, you can have God plus nothing in Bethlehem. Or, you can have the hope of material possession and family minus God in Moab. Here it is, right? This is what you have to look forward to, right? We see that Orpha chooses Moab. She she kisses her mother-in-law. She begins to make her way back. But what do we see in verse 14? Look with me in verse 14. In verse 14, Ruth clings to Naomi. Verse 15, and she said, see your sister-in-law, this is Naomi. She's she's going back to her people and to her God to return after your sister-in-law. And so we're making a transition here. We're seeing, we've seen and we've observed repentance in the heart of Naomi. But now we're going to see this expression of faith from Ruth as her and Naomi are dialoguing, preparing to make their way back. A difficult journey back to, well, short, difficult. Back to Bethlehem. She says this. Ruth said, in perhaps the most famous words in this book, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, follow this, shall be my people, and your God, my God. This is familiar language and terminology as we embrace the Old Testament writings. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. We observe in verse 15 and the first part of 16 a statement from Ruth toward Naomi that demonstrates human affection and devotion, no doubt. But it doesn't display only human affection and devotion. There's more, there's more there. Beyond Ruth's devotion to Naomi and her affection for her is this profession of faith in God. And so what does it look like to make a profession of faith in God? What, is it, what does it look like from the gospel according to Ruth? If you're here and you're not a Christian, right? Or you're unfamiliar with what it looks like, confession and profession and faith. Here it is. We see it in verse 16. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. There's this beautiful thread that runs through the entire first chapter of this story. 
There, there's a repetition. We see return mentioned four times. We see turning back mentioned twice. We see return in verse 21 and brought back in verse 32. The author is driving us somewhere, okay? The author is driving us somewhere. He's driving us towards deeper understanding of what God is doing. He's driving us towards a deeper understanding of what God is doing through hardship and sin, through difficulty and loss. He is rescuing. This is the message. This is what we're seeing. This is what we're observing. He's rescuing roots. We see God working sovereignly to bring someone to faith. This is what it looks like. Against all odds, this Moabite widow, God is having compassion and mercy and giving, extending the gift of faith to Ruth. And she is responding in this most, this most beautiful proclamation. Get this, this, this big idea before we begin to land, uh, before we begin to, to land this thing. In the midst of what initially appears as dark providence, a family in flight, the circumstances in Bethlehem, the experiences of Elimelech and his family there in Moab, in the midst of what initially appears as dark providence comes this flash of light. Right? Grace and redemption, faith and fellowship, not only between Naomi and Ruth, but between these two women and God. For Naomi, a turning back to God. And for Ruth, a confession and faith. We see a family in flight. We see a repentant heart and an expression of faith. And the last thing that we observe, and this, as always, is the shortest. A harvest. We see a harvest and it is only a glimpse of what we're going to observe over the next three chapters together. Look with me at verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The women said, is this Naomi? She looks a little bit older, right? Perhaps got a little more, little more gray hair than when she left, right? Is this her? She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me, call me Mara. Call me bitter. For the, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now that is pivotal. And we'll spend some time closing on that idea. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? What a gift. What a gift. What a, a gift. Naomi and her family left Bethlehem full in self-reliance and worldly wisdom. And now we see that she has been brought back shoe empty. Empty and, and, and humble and reliant on God. That's what she's saying. That's what she's communicating. Right? I left with this with this certain posture, right? And this certain position and these these ideals. But now I come back and man, humility. Right? Godly wisdom. Understanding of, of self-reliance. The Lord has done an incredible work 
through suffering in the heart of Naomi. She says, call me bitter, and we say, oh, the irony. (laughs) The irony as Naomi's life will stand as an illustration of God's work to make the bitter sweet. Call me bitter. My circumstances have been bitter, right? I've walked a bitter road. That's what she's saying. That's what she's communicating by way of this bitter language. The way has been hard. But God makes the bitter sweet. Right? Let us go to the cross and see this example of of the way in which God accomplishes this on, on an eternal salvific scale. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're back at the cross. Here we are. We're back at the cross. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine, bitter wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let's see, let's see whether Elijah will come and, and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. There are physical manifestations and ramifications for the crucifixion of Jesus. And the rocks, rocks were split open. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were, were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. What's the point? Here's the point. You guys ready for this? This is it. God makes bitter things sweet. God makes that which is bitter sweet. We observe it at the cross. Don't we? We see this event that apart from the resurrection and the hope of forgiveness and restoration produces within us this desire. This is the most bitter thing I've ever observed. But what does the resurrection say? The resurrection says that this this event, this, 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 this challenging Event to just consider, to observe as we're confronted with our need and our sin. God makes it sweet. Right? He makes it. He makes it sweet. We see his judgment at the cross, and we see his love at the cross. We see that which is bitter is made sweet. We see the cup that we are intended to drink, drinking by the Son. In order that we might not have to, but we might enjoy His righteousness and eternal fellowship with Him, transformed fellowship with one another. He transforms our understanding of the purpose of hardship and suffering, Christ-likeness, and and worshipful confidence in God. As He, over the next few chapters, replaces, as we will see in the book of Ruth, almost everything that has been lost, only He magnifies it. In goodness, verse 22, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem, and what is it? Harvest time. Man, what a different scene. This book begins with famine and death, and it ends with harvest and life, and the redemptive plan of God is progressing in this massive, little love story. It's incredible, and so what do we do? 
man, we, we see the kindness of God in Christ. The kindness of God leads us unto repentance. That's what we observe taking place in the life of Naomi and Ruth. The kindness of the Lord leading them to repentance. We, we look to Him. We shoo, right? Let's just all say that to one another from now on. Hey, shooting? Like, are we shooting? Right? We're repenting. We're turning from sin, right? We're turning from sin. We're, we're, we're turning and trusting in His great sufficiency. We observe His glorious goodness and grace and bless the name of the Lord with our lives. Blessing the name of the Lord. Man, this is just the beginning. We've got a long way to go. But we're going to get there quickly. Man, aren't you grateful that the Lord works in our difficulty? And He makes the bitter things sweet.